So we have various tech companies say, this is amazing. It's more than 95% effective at doing X. And you speak to them and you say, well, wow, you must have had a study with like thousands of patients then. And they've, they've got 22 patients. And you think, okay. The NHS at its heart is about caring for people. Free at the point of care, creating a safety net which catches the most vulnerable. Tech has been defined by the Facebook maxim, move fast, break things. Looking to disrupt a sector, get investment and then move on. We want to be able to harness the potential utility of digital tech in the NHS. But how can those two cultures be reconciled? And what salutary lessons should we learn from other industries, pharmaceuticals perhaps, or devices, before we embark on these new ventures? I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and recently went to the Health Foundation's annual event. Tech in the NHS was one of the main topics of discussion. At the event, I managed to grab time with two of the speakers, each has a research background and is trying to bridge the gap between, on one hand, the rigour of clinical research, and on the other, the flexibility of tech research. I'm Neil Sabir, I'm Professor of Pathology and the Chief Research Information Officer at Great Ormond Street Hospital. So we're in an interesting time at the moment. There's lots of uh, interest from the research community and from the political community about the value of NHS data. Now, whether this is monetary value or value for society of all the things we can do, and we're also starting now to collect new types of data we were never collecting before in healthcare. So people's wearables, that may be their own consumer things from devices, home monitoring, etc. We don't know what is the optimal way to use that data. And interestingly, a large proportion of the data that we now collect in the NHS, we either don't collect in a way that makes it easy to be used, or even if we do, we are not using it. <laughs> to its maximum. We also know that data isn't, you know, it's not all equally valuable and the way it's used and collected and analysed can, you know, have problems. Absolutely. And I think there are, firstly, there's a big issue around data quality. So lots of organisations, including our own, you think, wow, we have all this data we've collected as part of routine care. Now you start really looking at that data in detail and perhaps wasn't annotated as well as it could have been, or perhaps a phrase has been used that's slightly ambiguous. You're not quite sure the best way of, of using that data. And I think hospitals particularly, but it will be wider in healthcare organisations, are starting to realise if we are going to go down this route of collecting new data, particularly what streaming data, so particularly data that's coming off of devices, a, how should we do that? And B, who should do that? So whose responsibility is it? And this really hasn't been tested yet, really, within the NHS. So on the one hand, you want to extract from all of that noise the minimum bit of data that is useful, versus, on the other hand, is there a medico-legal imperative that the patient gave you all this data, and actually it's the NHS's job to store it in case it might be useful in the future. And that is a thorny issue that lots of organisations are now just starting to be thinking about. 
and uh, advice is collecting some data and it's doing it in a, a routine, validated way it doesn't actually mean um, that that data is is useful in any way to the patient to to anyone. You've got a digital research informatics unit. Are these some of the questions that you're kind of wrestling with, Neil? Yeah, we're trying to look at various of, of these elements. So the, the the point you you made is very valid that it is highly likely that of all of the data that is and could be collected, only a small proportion is useful for a particular medical scenario. The difficulty at the moment is, until we collect that data and evaluate it, we don't know which small proportion of that data and for which particular patient populations it might be useful. So actually part of the process at the moment will be learning what is appropriate and in this clinical scenario, what is useful, whereas it may not be useful in a different clinical scenario. So I think that is that is one area. So are you saying just sort of let it happen, evaluate it afterwards and then do it as opposed to maybe, you know, someone comes along with an idea and then we set up a, a proper study or a proper way of evaluating it before it gets rolled out more widely? I think in reality it's going to be both because one of the things that we were discussing earlier is people often say, ah, but it's very difficult to evaluate tech. Well, actually, no, it isn't, because that's what we do in, in medicine. If you're a some if you're an academic, you evaluate something. So tech shouldn't be any different from that perspective. And absolutely, it is right to set up studies to particularly evaluate certain tools. On the flip side, we all we must also be aware that we will not be able to set up a study to look at every possible scenario. And therefore, we have to be ready to say, you know what, this is real world data. And there is a big interest in general now around clinical trials, well-controlled clinical trials versus real world evidence. In other words, you just see from routine data how patients behave who happen to be given these medications, for example. So... I think we have to do both, and I think there's room for both. Okay, so my name's Ramani Moonsinger. I'm a professor of perioperative medicine and a consultant anaesthetist at UCL. In, in, in your um, talk about uh, one of your PhDs um, creating a, a new app which um, helps children... We well, hope, hope it does. Yes. Hope it manages, helps children manage um, anxiety before yes. surgery. Uh, and rightly, you're you're looking at that um, to see if there are any perhaps unintended consequences. Maybe it increases anxiety. That's a, a potentially different mindset, I think, to um, the way that we've seen kind of tech develop, you know, move fast, break things. Um, is that something we need to kind of be wary of in our, our interactions with tech? So um, I think that we're doing it the right way. To, to do that evaluation. I just wish it was quicker. Um, it's um, it's going to be too long, I think, between uh, Chris having the idea, developing the technology, and then us getting the funding, doing the evaluation, writing it up, getting it out there. You know, it's the process is, is, is too long. And um, particularly when inevitably the people that are involved in delivering this type of evaluation are also doing multiple other things, including looking after their own patients. So um, 
yeah, we've just got to find a way of accelerating this type of thing. But I think, but we, but we must evaluate because otherwise, you know, there's well-known examples of apps that are out there that haven't been evaluated, and um, there's a lot of chit chat about, oh, this is brilliant, and then somebody else is throwing rocks at it, and you don't know who's right, and we need some, we need a little bit more clarity. One of the anecdotal things that, that I've come across, and I'm sure you have as well, is that there is a vast difference in the quality and amount of data that is required to show something from a, if you like, an academic and medical clinical significance perspective versus a tech company selling it or exposing it for uh, venture capital. Mm -hmm. So we have various tech companies say, this is amazing. It's more than 95% effective at doing X. And you speak to them and you say, well, wow, you must have a study with like thousands of patients then. And they've, they've got 22 patients. And you think, okay, that's not quite right then, is it? Because from a me- that, that, that level of evidence, and there is definitely, definitely a disconnect that I've seen on quite a few occasions between what is required to actually show something and what you think it might do from anecdote. And... And that there is still a, a disconnect, I think, that we need to help bridge. Uh, and the risk with not addressing the issue is, I'm going to borrow a term from the QI literature, this effort substitution thing. If you What's that? So, so um, if you focus on one thing, you can sometimes do that to the exclusion of everything else. And therefore, other stuff that might be more important gets left behind. So uh, in QI, that's talked about in terms of you know, everybody's focusing on improving blah measure and then you forget about everything else and actually it's the other stuff that's important. In this setting, if everybody focuses on the shiny new gizmo and they forget about or they don't concentrate on other things, then that can be a real problem. And so, um, yeah, I think this issue must be addressed. Mm. And as you're trying to sort of evaluate things and you're coming up against that those different mindsets, um, do you feel like there's movement there? Is the industry sort of changing a little bit or or is it still a very kind of, we just need to get some venture capital for this and then and, and move on? I think there's a bit of the second, particularly among uh, often startups, the idea that health is a nice juicy pool in which you can make lots of money. But having said that, lots of the larger tech companies globally now have health divisions and if you went back five years almost none of them did and therefore you could be cynical and say that's because they see health as somewhere where you can make lots of money but at the same time it does mean that they are starting to learn about what needs to be done if you want to go down into that route and we are finding that it is i think gradually they get it more Mm -hmm. it's becoming more accepted that actually, okay, we can't just do this tomorrow. We're going to have to go through a process of getting the approvals to do this, and we're going to have to provide information. And I think it's going to take time, but I think it is changing. And I mean, the NHS is particularly attractive to these big companies because of the wealth of data that we have, the infrastructure that ties everything together. Um, a health secretary who's particularly keen to to sort of tie that up. Um, how do you think you know the NHS should, I don't know, champion that kind of data collection, that um, rigor, I suppose, um, when it comes to evaluation? Um, so, 
or if that's so uh so i uh, so i think the nhs will be pleased to adopt and support things which are going to improve the quality of patient care we um uh, talk most frequently about um new drugs new machines new implants new this new that uh, that's they, they've all got their place they're important and so on uh, the way in which we can work with te- uh, with data and technology companies is around building the systems that will enable us to uh, do the routine stuff more effectively um, uh, be more responsive to changes in epidemiology of patients and how they behave in response to different diseases or treatments or whatever um, and uh to yeah to use to to help to use the technology to help us get better at what we're supposed to be doing while also in the background we're bringing in specific new technologies which might be drugs or devices for example the biggest prize will require a change in thinking because many of these newer tools will benefit the wider system and the patient but outside of the place that developed or deployed the tool. So if you if there is an intervention which, let's say for, for want of argument, allows a child to attend school more, that is a very valuable thing. But at the moment, we are very focused on the specific health thing rather than the wider. Now, tech may be good for that, but actually it it is very hard at the moment to assess that wider benefit as opposed to the very specific question that we are used to doing when we essentially do a very targeted clinical trial. As both Romney and Neil suggested, there is this cultural difference between tech and the NHS. One which anyone who's bringing innovation into the NHS needs to be aware of. NHS England has been thinking about this, and it's trying to create a more level playing field on which both sides can work. One which converts the fundamental ethos of the NHS into a set of principles to which any tech company should be held. They've formalised this into the Code of Conduct for Data-Driven Health and Care Technology. And I spoke to Indra Joshi, Digital Health and Artificial Intelligence Clinical Lead at the newly formed NHSX, the department within the NHS focusing on tech innovation. We're here to talk to you about this code of conduct, which is um, published and people can go and read it. Uh, And there's a lot of stuff in there uh, around data sort of use and and protection and things. And and it kind of reads like a response to the whole Facebook Cambridge Analytica debacle. Um, What was it that that really prompted the start of this? Was it something like that? Was it a, a, you know, a, a response to try and protect people? To a certain degree, I think we probably have been thinking about this space for quite some time. So um, a couple of years ago, I can't remember the exact date now, Simon Stevens at one of the NHS expos sort of said, you know, we as the NHS want to start thinking about AI and the strategy around what we do with AI. And out of the back of that, a couple of us who were working in this field thought, 
well, what is it that people want? Like, what what is it that's out there that can help them when they're thinking about either developing or creating or implementing some form of AI-based technology? And we went and spoke to quite a lot of people at the time. And what we figured out was there was no sort of how-to guide or a framework out there. Um, and at the same time, in parallel, the AHSN initiative, AI initiative, set up a working group as well, which was comprised of industry, academia, us as government, and some of the arm's length bodies, and anybody else who were innovators or developers interested in this space. And we published a report last year uh, on the back of that. And what the report really said and what all these um, stakeholders said was we really just want a framework that we can refer to that has lots of links of what we need to know as, as whoever we might be, whoever the end user might be, when we're developing and trying to implement these products. So we... We did. It was almost sort of a high-level Delphi methodology. We went out, we looked at all the various codes of conducts out there and said, oh, okay, you know, these are the different principles that people want to see. And we went through, we iterated it and iterated and then published 10 uh, high-level principles um, in September. And these were what people said, yeah, actually, these are the stuff that we don't always think about. And some of them are a little bit obvious, like what's your user need? What's the problem you're solving? But quite often with data, what we found was people gather data, try and do something with it, and then try and fit the thing they've done to a problem. But that's not really the right way around. You should understand what your user need is and what the problem is, and then try and see, well, what do I need to do to develop that and solve that? So that's that was sort of the origin of why we developed the code of conduct and how it came about. And, and we had a lot of support within the organization and from Department of Health as well to do this. Um, that's an interesting point you make there about sort of mm. defining the problem before actually trying to just implement a solution. When it comes to this, people can be really sort of see a new, wow, that's an amazing, cool bit of tech. And that's quite a seductive thing that, you know, people want to go and then use it as opposed to thinking, actually, what's the fundamental problem that I want to solve? And is there a solution to do that? Um, so do you think that's sort of one of the main tenants of of your code of conduct it's it's a, so the code of conduct is a set of behaviors and principles and what we wanted to encourage was people to think about the whole journey so don't just think about one particular thing quite often in ai or data-driven tech people get stuck on the data and what we wanted to encourage people to say is don't get just stuck on one thing think about the end-to-end -end process think about what is it that your users want? What's their need? And then think about how are you getting that data? Is it ethically sourced? Is it unbiased? Is it proportionate? You know, what are the considerations you've used in developing that algorithm? Where's your evidence? And what we wanted to do was encourage people to think about all of these different things. Because quite often, if you come from one sector or another sector, be it tech or health, you don't always think about the other thing because that's not your expertise. And what we wanted to do was encourage people to think about things they might not normally think about. Mm. And and that makes sense. Uh, and I suppose that it's not just really in this this uh, kind of health tech sector. It's it's all through uh, guideline development and anything else to do with medicine. That that's sort of a, a good thing to do. Um, the NHS is, you know, it's free at the point of care. The whole idea of it is to provide this this safety net to catch the whole population and, and try and maximise everyone's health. And then at the other end, 
you know, uh, this was famously um, Facebook saying was, you know, move fast, break things. It was all about sort of changing stuff really quickly. And because uh, it didn't really matter if, if that broke because it's it's only a phone or it's only a website or something. It's not sort of fundamentally a problem. So these are, they're almost sort of two entirely different ways of looking at the world. Um, is there something in your code about about thinking about that, about bridging that gap somehow? Yeah, so when we, so one of the things that we wanted to really instill within in the code and, and the, the sort of the blurb that goes around it was the NHS constitution. So it was written, it was there for a reason, you know, healthcare free at the point of care, but developed for everyone for the greater good. And, and throughout, throughout the 10 principles, we've tried to instill that behavior and say, you know, make sure that you try and use where and how possible open standards, for example, be transparent about what you're doing, what the limits of what you're doing are, and thereby instilling what we and the Nuffield, um, oh, what's it called? The Council on Bioethics. Yes, the, the Council, so the Nuffield Bioethics um, principles as well, which in our traditional healthcare setting, these are what we believe in. So as a doctor, I'm trained within the Hippocratic Oath of do good, don't do harm. That's something that's instilled in me. And what we wanted to instill with the code is that same principle of uh, beneficence and non-maleficence to say, you know, be whatever you're designing, this isn't about breaking it within about three days and then trying again. Make sure that you've thought about what you're designing, the implications of what it has when it's, when it's deployed in whatever setting it might be deployed. And then how will it be monitored moving forward? So if you are trying to say, my algorithm is going to start reading images, for example, and therefore I don't need a human to read that image, be open about how you're going to develop and what that impact is going to be as it moves forward. And so whilst we understand there is this need within the tech and the, the, the industry to, I really feel hesitant to say, you know, move fast and break things because we do need to move fast but I think we need to move fast in a, in a way that maintains patient safety and maintains integrity of the NHS whilst being conscious of what the data is doing what's happening to the data and so we're not just saying okay yes go and develop whatever you want and here is all of our data off you go but actually work in partnership with us think about what our what our problems are and what is it that you're going to help us solve and then how can we actually implement that so it's useful for everyone within that setting versus oh you know go and buy something well done for you for buying it mm. um and kind of you know harking back to facebook they had uh, a, a model and what they wanted to do um was make money it's all about advertising it's about kind of getting to know the using the data of the people that use it to to do that but the kind of there's an unintended consequence to that which we've seen play out in uh you know the way that maybe elections um have been influenced and there you know this is sort of beginning we're beginning to understand that there were unintended consequences to that now the example that you gave of you know if we've got some ai or, or we've got some tech to um to look at images and maybe that means that you know jobs uh would change that will have downstream consequences beyond just the i don't know that particular process that's being optimized you know into how our radiographers 
trained and you know will we then have enough people to do some of the other things that they do you know so these the, these small changes could have potentially big ripples and do you have a way of um helping people think through that so one so this is a big question that we've been thinking about um, and we by no means have the complete answer but one of the things within the code we developed this principle called principle seven which is about showing what's the type of algorithm being developed or deployed what's the ethical examination of how that data is used how will its performance be validated and how will it be integrated into the health and care pathway or service and the reason that principle was so sort of long-winded, one might say, <laughs> was we wanted people to consider just that question you've asked me. So it's quite easy when you're in a lab or in a research setting to think, I've got this great model and it's really going to improve something. And you, and you become quite fixated on your model and the data inside your model. But when you then apply that in the clinical practice or the workforce practice, it can there are going to be nuances that will change and what we wanted people to do was to think about that whole process so actually if you are going to improve somebody's workflow what's the bigger picture so for example if you are looking at improving and um, measuring a distance in an image so radiologists do this quite often they will look at a, an image and they will measure distance from a to b mm. now this is quite a repetitive task and uh, the AI machine, it can do that for you. So that might then free up, say, 20% of their time. Now, what are they going to do with that 20% of their time? And how do they then change how they work? Because if I do a repetitive task, my brain sometimes starts thinking, what next, whilst I'm doing that repetitive task? But now if that repetitive task is taken away from me, and done automatically and I then just have to immediately think what next we've not really thought about that whole journey so that's what we're trying to encourage people to start doing and people are doing it already and there's some great examples of that happening across uh, the healthcare system at the moment but sometimes they don't and so that's what we wanted to encourage people to say so just because you've created an efficiency or you've automated a task how does that fit into the whole care pathway and what's the impact that then has on that person? So if you're, if I no longer have to transcribe my notes because they're done automatically, well, normally when I sit down in, in the A&E, that's my thinking time, or mm. what do I do next? But then I've lost that thinking time. So what happens? How do I change my behavior? What's the, the next step for me as the person in the pathway? And we've by no means got the answers to all of these and i think this is still stuff we're grappling with and trying to figure out as we move along but one of the things we did on the back of the number seven principle was to start developing a, a kind of a a workbook or a, a how-to pathway not to say here are the answers you need to get them but have you thought about this in a way that is ethical and safe uh, and doesn't do harm for your patients or the workforce or whoever you are intending this to be for so we're sort of on that journey i would say but still exploring on how we get it right mm. i mean it sounds incredibly complicated because uh you know at some point you have to to stop otherwise everything could end up being just sort of evaluated for forever and ever yeah. uh, as those ripples sort of go out now you mentioned something else earlier which was mm. the hippocratic oath and yeah. um 
you know, doctors are regulated um, professionally, but there are also, you know, the sort of social mores of being a doctor and the sort of professional standards that, that are sort of self-imposed and self uh, and governed by the community. Um, mm. Whereas the tech industry doesn't have the same sort of, you know, oversight, as it were. Um, now, with your code of conduct, uh, is there any sort of teeth to this? Is there any sort of regulation? What does this actually mean if um, if it found out that that a company we were working with or a project didn't actually adhere to this? So that's a good question and something that we thought about quite early on when we were writing it. So one of the steers we had initially was if you create a code of conduct, we then have to use it as a, what we would call a sort of a kite marking or a regulatory stamp. Regulatory mm. is probably the wrong word, but accreditation stamp to say, you've approved this, great, now you're okay to go forward. And when we did, we did quite a bit of user research with a lot of the community, but also with some of our regulators and key stakeholders within um, the funding and uh, so clinical academic space. And the overwhelming answer, this was at the end of last year, was we don't quite think the market's ready because as much as people say we're developing this, we're not seeing much deployment within the live clinical setting for us to actually say, here's, here's your rubber stamp. So what we did on the back of that was then to say, okay, how do we turn this into a set of questions that people can start using as they're developing these technologies? And in parallel, what we're doing is also working with the regulators, because that's probably where we need to put the focus on in saying, as you develop these types of technologies, so if it's a learning device or it's an, an algorithm that makes decisions, how do we regulate those? So we have um, sort of a cross-government, cross-regulatory working group that's looking at some of this stuff. We've teamed up with the Better Regulation Executive to also help us assess the gaps in the current frameworks and the current regulations to say, okay, how do we adapt our regulatory pathways to sort of capture these? And also once something's deployed in the live setting, how do we monitor that sort of learning pathway as it adapts? It's interesting. And and is there a sort of timeline to that or, or you have you got a, a pathway to that regulation perhaps uh, worked out so no clear timeline i would say but i mean these things first you have to figure out the gaps so we've done quite a lot of work in understanding what the gaps in the current regulation are we're now working with the regulators so people like mhra the hra the ico to say well how do we address those gaps and and i would hope that over the next year to two years that we get some clearer guidance out there for what what we need to do and then after that what we will need to do is start developing this more regulation as a service pathway which i mean these are all totally new ideas that even so we're looking at this in health but we've got to be aware that the tech sector are also looking at this so we talk quite closely with the ico about how they are thinking about this and also, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but the um, the government has set up a body called the Office of AI, I which haven't. is also yeah. So this is a cross. I'm not sure whether it's a unit or whether it's a body or whether it's a group. Anyway, you can figure that out. But it's, <laughs> a, 
sort of overlooking industry as a whole. So it's not just health, but, you know, the aviation industry, the tech industry, lots of different sectors and how we start regulating AI as a whole. I mean, this isn't a problem unique to healthcare. This is across the board. That's it for this podcast. We'll be back soon with a look at personal health budgets. What's the point of them? How do they actually work? And how your patient can get the most out of them? Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on that. As always, we like to hear from you. So if you have any comments or questions or suggestions for things you'd like to hear in the podcast, have a look at bmj.com slash podcasts where you'll find details of how to get in touch. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.